If we're not reading the Bible through Jesus and we're taking everything as equal and giving everything uh, the same weight and taking it at its face value, the Bible's an incoherent text. How can you say, listen to the cries of the poor without looking at what makes them poor? You don't have to believe certain things to be part. The irony is that you can be pro-guns, pro-death penalty, pro-military, anti-environment, and still say you're pro-life. But people get really uncomfortable. It's like they want to have their religion and they want to have their porn. They want to do both. I don't think any form of Christianity deserves to survive and thrive if it doesn't come to terms with the racism of our past. When we really tell the story of Jesus, we find a God who comes to the point where it has all collapsed. If a good teacher is to get a student to get the right answers on the test, and if Jesus was supposed to get us to get the right answer for when we die, then can we just be honest and say, not a good teacher? Hey, welcome everyone to Jesus Never Ran. Always great to be with you. Of course, this episode, as well as most of the Jesus Never Ran episodes, are sponsored by Angie Niska with Rise Nutrition. You can find them at Rise Menominee on Facebook. And if you go to the show notes, you can get your free wellness profile by clicking the link there. That's Rise Nutrition with Angie Niska. Again, that's Rise Menominee. Rise is with a Z. Today on the show, we have a listener recommendation, which is super cool. And this man just happens to be one of my favorite pastors in the world because he's from Canada. So here we go from the great North pastor and author, Bruxy Cavi. I don't know about you, but uh, growing up, if you ever had a friend who you got along with famously, but then they started dating somebody who you didn't get along with, and then you had to figure out, well, if I want to hang out with my friend, now I got to hang out with uh, my friend's girlfriend or boyfriend, and I got to learn how to be friends with them too, and it gets all kind of awkward. I've had that kind of experience with the church. I've just always thought, Jesus, I love you, man. You are so cool. But this chick you are dating, she is a piece of work, man. Uh, <laughs> and and then I think as I've matured, I've realized, okay, I'm part of the problem, not just the guy who gets to sit back and complain. I am part of the church. And so I moved out of slowly my deconstruction frustration phase and into the, how can I be part of the solution? What does it mean to rebuild something that's healthy and not just point out the problem? And so I'm, I'm in that phase of my life saying, um, I, I, I want to be honest about my complaints about the church, about organized religion, and at the same time say, um, I, I believe that a spirituality that is expressed in community is the hope of the world. And um, we're not just a single separated individuals trying to sort it all out on our own. And so I believe in organizing ourselves for the kind of faith that Jesus calls us to. So that that means I, I said yes when a church asked me to be a pastor, even though I never pictured myself being a pastor. I think that's a big comic plot twist of my life. And so I'm now a pastor of a church called The Meeting House, and I've been there for a long time. I'm their teacher, but I learn the most out of the process. I feel like my experience with healthy community, with Jesus at the center, has saved my faith, and I'm grateful for it. Roxy, just a huge honor to have you on the show. I've been following you and listening to you and reading things that you've written for a long time now, for years and years and years. So thank you so much for being on the show. One of the things that I want to talk about, and we've have already spent some time talking about this on the show, but there's a reality to the deconstruction process of rethinking your faith and kind of getting to the core of, of what you truly believe or what a person truly believes. But then there's this time when it seems like 
you can become very cynical and maybe a little bit different than the person that you really want to be in this life. And so there's definitely this time where I think it's important to maybe put a stake in the ground and decide what it is that you are going to stand on. So what is your recommendation for somebody who's maybe thick in the deconstruction process, but is starting to feel like there's got to be a change, like a, there just has to be a movement forward? In some sense, we can't rush the process or someone may always feel kind of cajoled and forced. And that's one of our complaints against the religious process is that it's a it's a power hungry system that, that can manipulate us into saying the right thing and saying we're at the right stage when we're just not. So I want to encourage people to be authentic to themselves. But I would hope that people get to the point where they sense their own incompleteness as a human being if they only know what they stand against. If they only know that their identity is in pointing out the problem of what was or what they used to belong to and are not part of building a more beautiful world, then we're not being fully um, fully actualized. I mean, Abraham Maslow would say that's the pinnacle of our, our human existence is self-actualization. And I think Jesus self-actualizes the human experience like nothing else, no other principle or teacher. But everyone, I think, has to at least get to the point of saying, how do I become actually me? And hopefully the me I want to become is someone who's building something beautiful, not just uh, criticizing something ugly. So, so good. So good, Bruxy. All right. Again, I've been following you, listening to you for a long time now. If someone were to ask me, hey, who's on the podcast this week? Could you describe who Bruxy is? What I would say is Bruxy Cavi is somebody that above all else is just wildly captured by Jesus. Is, is that a fair representation of you? Yes, I, and I am because I'm so not captured by anything else, I guess, too. Um, love, there's something inside me that, that just resonates with the love that Jesus calls us to in such a radical way. Jesus did something that no religion on the planet had done. He took love of God and love of neighbor and love of enemy, and he fused them together so tightly. When a, a religious teacher asked him, what's the, the greatest commandment? And he responds and says, well, love God with everything you've got and, 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 and love your neighbor as you love yourself. He takes two different commands, and the guy didn't ask for it to talk to commandments. He just asked for one command. Jesus fused them together so that under his covenant, the new covenant, which Jesus said he was bringing, we don't love God and, and love our neighbor. We actually love God by loving our neighbor. He doesn't just give us two options out there because Jesus knows if he just says love God and he leaves it at that, there are people who will either ignore, disrespect, or even blow up other human beings in order to establish their love of God. The Christian church went to war against the heathens. It burned witches, and it slayed heretics, all to show how much they loved God. So, we hated humans to show how much we love God, and other religions will do the same. Um, so, Jesus makes that impossible if you really stare into Jesus. He binds our love of God with our love of humanity, and then the rest of the New Testament picks up on that and puts the emphasis on on loving others as the form our worship should take. Okay, for instance, for instance, 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus died for us, and so we should, and you'd think the rest of the sentence should be, Jesus died for us, so we should be willing to give our lives for him. I always heard that growing up. You know, Jesus died for you. The least you can do is live for him. And it seems tit for tat. It flows grammatically. Jesus died for us, so we should lay down our lives for Jesus. But it's not what 1 John 3.16 says. Jesus died for us, and we should lay down our lives for others, for our brothers and sisters. And that's not an anomaly. That captures what is a consistent new covenant pattern in the New Testament. All of his followers come to the same conclusion. We should take the love that God has for us and not focus on loving God back, but focus on taking the love we receive from God and offering it to other people 
And that's the form our worship should take. Galatians 5.14, the Apostle Paul says, this is what fulfills the law. And he doesn't even get to the love God first and love your neighbors yourself. He just skips straight to the second command. Love your neighbors, you love yourself. That fulfills all of the law. The whole focus of the new covenant is a form of spiritual worship that is expressed through practically loving the world around us. And I can't find that anywhere else. So I'm like, I'm sold. That that can change the world. And I don't know what else can. But I'll tell you, on my bad days, I'm in the position where the disciples were in John 6, where Jesus says some some weird stuff about, you're going to have to eat my flesh. You got to drink my blood if you're going to be a part of me. Like People are, what? You're just weird. And then they leave. They A whole bunch of people, Jesus loses a whole bunch of followers when he goes down that, that path. And then his disciples are hanging out with him at the end of it. And he says, are you guys going to go too? And Peter has an interesting response. He goes, where else will we go? And I think, yeah, on my bad days, uh, that's where I'm at. I'm like, I don't know what else to believe because I've looked at the other options. And I realized that some of my doubt and my processing is not something that is indigenous to Jesus as much as it is indigenous to my own heart. And I will take that with me wherever I go. I could be an atheist, but I will be a doubting atheist. I will be a Buddhist, but I'll be a doubting Buddhist. That's part of Bruxy. And I'm a doubting Jesus follower, absolutely. But that speaks of who I am, not who Jesus is. And the beautiful thing is we doubt what we care about. So honestly, I don't have a lot of attraction toward Islam, for instance. I've read the Quran, I've, I've studied Islam, and there's a lot about it that I respect but I just don't believe it. It's like one-sided Velcro. It doesn't have any pull on me. It just doesn't stick. So I don't lay awake at night and doubt Islam. I don't wrestle with my doubts over Islam. I just actually don't have an interest. I don't, I don't believe it. So what I do wrestle with doubt over is something I care about. And um, yes, I doubt my own faith in Christ, but I, I'm a doubting believer. I lean into Jesus. And I think, I think on my bad days, well, he's the best option there is. And on my good days, I think what he's teaching us can change the world. Absolutely. Bruxy, question. Okay, so here's one of my biggest challenges. When we talk about contradictions in the Bible, my biggest struggle, and you address this in your book, End of Religion, but my biggest struggle is I think the biggest contradiction in the Bible is the wrath, anger, and seemingly hatred of God in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, we have Jesus, who is all-loving, peaceful, and really the opposite, I would say, of what we see of God in the Old Testament. So you address this new covenant, old covenant topic in your book, The End of Religion. So take us through this a little bit, would you? Sure, sure. Some of us who grew up in the church have heard the cliche, you know, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. I grew nauseous of the cliche after a while. And then I grew up and I thought, I think the people who've been saying that have been right all along. They just didn't know how right they were, the profundity of what they were saying. There's and there's truth behind that um, if we push a little deeper. And that is the nature of the new covenant. The new covenant doesn't just add on something, just doesn't bolt some new teaching onto the old covenant. The old covenant is replaced by it ends. Um, as Hebrews 8.13 says, uh, the old covenant is now obsolete. And sometimes when I'm having a conversation with a friend about, they say, we just got to follow the Bible. And I'll say, well, no, we, we don't follow all the Bible. We follow Jesus. We don't just follow the Bible. We follow Jesus. The Bible points us to Jesus, but in the end, we follow Jesus. And I'll say, well, the whole Bible is God's word. And I'll say, yeah, except half of it's obsolete. And when I throw in the word obsolete, 
they get really upset. They're like, Roxy, are you still a Christian? How can you say that? I say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just quoting scripture. That's what the New Testament writers, that's the word they use to describe the old covenant. You have half of the Bible calling the rest of the Bible obsolete. As far as law, as far as our guidance system, we don't turn to the old covenant. And if we're not Jewish, it was never our covenant to begin with. Um, but it it, it's, it serves a, a role of preparing our hearts and getting us ready for Jesus and pointing to Jesus, but it's not our covenant to follow. The new covenant is completely different. So you have a covenant that according to Jesus, is not just more laws or rules or teaching added on to the old. It's the letting go of the old and the spirit. And God saying, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to soften your heart. And we're going to do this in partnership together. And you're going to learn to listen to your heart. So I read the Bible to get to know Jesus so I can recognize the voice of Jesus speaking in my own heart. I'm coming back to the Bible all the time, but not just because I follow the book. You know, we're people of the book, which is actually a phrase that Muhammad came up with to describe Christians, Jews, and um, and Muslims. As he was developing the Quran, he said, well, we're all people of the book. And, and then Christians have rallied around that and said, yep, we're people of the book. And I think, no, we're not. It, it, I'm not responsible to allow a Muslim misunderstanding of my identity to be my rallying cry. We are not people of the book. We're people of the person, and that's Jesus. We use the book, study the book, read the book, so we can follow Jesus. And, and that, that just frees me up then. So I read the book so I can recognize the voice of Jesus in my own heart. And then I, I learn to listen to my heart, trusting that Jesus says, I'm, I'm hanging out there. And it becomes a very a beautiful, experiential, and relational spirituality, because if I believe that, then I believe the same thing's true of you. So when you and I talk together and I bounce ideas off you, now we're amplifying the voice of the Spirit. We're amplifying the voice of Jesus in our presence. And, and as I get together with other brothers and sisters, I do the same. So it drives me into relationship. This new covenant, as I said earlier, I think is the actualization, the self-actualization of humanity that instead of just being the hard-hearted people following a bunch of rules, we are actually learning how to be fully human and being equipped to be fully human through this new covenant that Jesus brings. You know, Bruxy, I'm always just a little bit hesitant, not not a lot, but mildly hesitant to bring a pastor on this podcast simply because so many of the listeners of this show have had negative experiences when it comes to pastors wielding power or using the Bible or their authority to do things that ultimately end up being very hurtful. So as a pastor, currently a pastor, pastor for a long time, can you just speak into the reality of power like this being used in such a negative and hurtful way? You know, power is attractive and religious power is some of the most coercive power on the planet, even when it doesn't look like it. And I think that unfortunately, spiritual leadership can attract people who still have a lot of ego issues that they're processing, even at the subconscious level. They may not be someone who's known for just wanting to have power, but I think it can attract even just some of the worst of all of us. Religious power and authority over someone else can be some of the most manipulative and ugly, as we know this through church history and unfortunately church present. I think that we have to be cautious when we're playing with that kind of power. And at the same time, I understand what many people would say is, that's why I don't trust the system. So I'm walking away from all of it. I'm going, I'm going solo. And that's, that's a dissatisfying solution after a while. I don't have to convince anyone. I think we'll all get there on our own if we're, if we're walking down that path by ourselves, where we realize, I mean, even our atheist friends are saying concepts like atheist church and atheist fellowship, atheist hymns are being developed now by the atheist community because they realize that um, we don't want to just fragment away from something. We, we need expression with others. So the idea of the church you know, purified and done well with Jesus's definition of power, he says in Mark 10, 
don't go the way of the Romans. In other words, the, the societal cues around you says the power is top down and coercive. And Jesus says, don't follow that example. Instead, serve from the bottom up rather than coerce from the top down. He says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. So he's redefining power from coercive power above to the power of love that serves from the bottom up. John 13 says that Jesus showed the full extent of his love. Uh, the Last Supper, when he he gets down on his hands and knees and he washes his disciples' feet, including Judas's feet, who he already knows is going to betray him. This is the definition of power for us. And I think that can be a game changer, but we're going to have to stay relentlessly Jesus-centered to keep from getting off track. So as the pastor of the meeting house, how have you then intentionally avoided this coercive religious power that's so easy to fall into? Yeah, that's good. Thanks. When I was first hired at the Meeting House, they wanted to hire me to be the senior pastor. And I I think I knew enough even about my own fragile ego that I said, no, I don't think that that's wise, because if our church does grow, small at the time, I didn't know it would grow, but if it grew numerically, there's all these um, things that can begin to play in our ego. And um, and so I'm not saying I'm above it all. I'm saying because I'm not, I don't think that's healthy for, for me. Um, I said, I want to be part of a team, a plurality of leadership. And they said, well, no, we just, want, we just want to hire you for a senior pastor. That's the job we're hiring you for. Do you want it or not? And I said, well, if I would prefer to be hired as part of a team of pastors, even if the others are volunteer, I would want to make sure that you're all, we're all co-equal leaders and I'm submitted to that team together. Um, maybe you'd pay me to be like the gopher for the team to go and get stuff done, do research, but I kind of got him back and submit it to the team. And they said, no, we just want you to be the senior pastor. So I accepted the position of senior pastor. I said, now as senior pastor who has all authority, first thing I'd like to do is recreate our our leadership structure. So I was actually the solo senior pastor of our church for about five minutes. Uh, and my first maneuver was to change our leadership structure and submit myself to the team. We have um, practiced team leadership ever since to say that. So I, our overseers, who's like our board of directors, they don't, they're not just advisors on the side. They're my bosses. Our structure is that I'm, I'm the paid guy to go and get stuff done. And so I may look like the face of the place, you know, but when I when I hear a band play at a concert, I don't know that the lead singer, even if the lead singer may be the one you identify, I identify Bono more with you two than anybody else. But I don't know when they're practicing together. Is he actually leading the practice? Is he the one who runs the? I don't know that. And so what we've just wanted to say very strongly that solo pastoral authority is a setup. It's not good for the pastor. It's not good for the church. And so I know some personalities will be more well known, but I think behind the scenes, we need to have a, a strong emphasis on sharing power, distributing it among amongst a team. That's so good. And honestly, as I'm thinking on it right now, the vast majority of the pastors that I have interviewed for this podcast are in a leadership structure much like what you just described, kind of a co-pastor leadership model. I think it's a much healthier way to move into the future of organized church than the senior person at the top type of model that's been really problematic over, well, a long time. In your book, Reunion, which came out a few years ago, one of the things I really enjoyed about it is you have a definition of sin that at least in my mind seems quite a bit different than the definition of sin that I grew up understanding. Yeah, right. Well, one of the most common words for sin, at least in the New Testament, is a Greek word, hamartia. 
And those of us who've grown up in the church have heard that hamartia means to miss the mark, like an arrow missing the bullseye. So it means to be off course, to miss where you're headed, where you're supposed to be going. Um, and that's true. It was used that way eventually. But that's not the etymology. The origin of the word means to be separated from. Uh, uh, ha is uh, a negation word, and martia comes from meros, which means to be together. So when you, you feel like, I don't have it together. I just not together. That's actually the word for sin, to not have it together. And so eventually, yes, it it meant that the arrow is not together with the target where it belongs. But ultimately, sin then is, I think, and I think this fits with the biblical narrative, it is a coercive force that separates things that should be together. And, and when things that are meant to be together, when the rust of re- relational rust starts to separate them and they fall apart, they lose their sense of self. Um, for instance, a set of headphones can be really helpful, but headphones that aren't plugged into anything are completely useless. They, they they have no purpose, and yet we see it. Their potential. They need to be plugged in to to some audio device. So uh, we we have a purpose. We're to be plugged into God and into one another. A sin is always this corrosive force that is at work to try and weaken those bonds and those relationships. Now, thinking specifically about the church in an organized fashion, you know what you do for a profession, day in and day out. I've been thinking a lot about the struggles. You know, we have so many people leaving church. I mean, people are just leaving church in droves. And so we definitely have to ask the question of why is that happening and what is next? And we follow this Jesus who represents life, death, and resurrection. And so much of our world and nature included represents that same life, death, and resurrection. So specifically, when we think about the church, Do you think there's hope for the church in its current form? And this may be a strange question to ask somebody like you, who is, again, doing this as your profession and have been doing it for a long time. So do you think the church can be changed in its current form, or does this thing have to die altogether and be resurrected into something brand new? Yeah, yeah, I think that's good thinking. It, It seems to me that this may need to be a generation of repentance. And when I say that, that sounds like a very churchy thing for a pastor to say. Um, But the the word repentance, metanoia, means to rethink. And that's exactly what we're talking about. This is a generation of rethinking everything and saying, I'm I'm not sure that I feel the responsibility to continue to steward what I've been handed for my generation. I'm not sure I've been handed something that's particularly healthy. Uh, Look where God is. Look at some of the things that's in our church history. No, no, I got to rethink that. Well, that's actually repentance is to rethink it all and to take a fresh look at things. And I think that could be really healthy. And it may mean for some people going through that process of walking away and spending some time away to do the act of repentance or rethinking and then taking a deep breath. And I would just encourage people to then come back to what's supposed to be at the center of our faith, which is Jesus, and see, I think you might see something there that is just far more beautiful, less judgmental, exquisitely loving and joy-filled, freeing, freeing in so many ways than the religion that we were handed that bears his name. And so, I'm, I'm just happy to be a part of that process for some people. And if church can help with that, then I think the church has a future. If not, you're right, the whole thing just needs to die and then push the reset button. Okay, Broxy, most important question of the entire podcast Tell us about your tattoo. (laughs) When I turned 50 years old, I said, I'm going to make some changes that are going to help me 
talk about Jesus with more people. Because I'm really convinced that both Christians and non-Christians kind of need to be introduced or reintroduced to Jesus. I think he's the, the hope of the world, including the hope of the church that's lost her way. And so I thought, what can I do? And some of the changes I would make, I think it happened because when I turned 50, I had my I'm going to die soon moment. You know, there's something about different ages of life. And for other people, it's different ages. For me, it was turning 50. Um, Cause I remember when I was young and like 50 was one year old, right. As a teenager, it's like, I'm going to live forever. And then, you know, in my twenties, it's like, I'm in the prime of my life. And in my thirties, it's like, uh, Oh, 30, I still got it. And 40 was like, you know, 40 is the new 30. And then I was 50 and I was like, yeah, no, I'm dead. That's it, man. Uh, that's it. No, I can't lie to myself anymore. So I realized I'm going to make some changes. And I am, although when I get talking about Jesus, you can't shut me up, obviously, but my personality default is I'm a highly skewed introvert. I'm a mild agoraphobic. I have uh, social anxiety, panic attacks, talking with people, but I wanted to push past my own personality default to have, and I, I thought, aha, a tattoo. People ask questions about tattoos. They're intimate. They're permanent. So pe- they must matter. And people ask questions. And I'm not very artistic. So I thought, I don't know what picture I'll get. So I'll just get a Bible verse. But what Bible verse in a tattoo would lead immediately to the conversation about Jesus and how he leads us out of the way of religious legalism into this beautiful life of freedom? And even as I was thinking about getting a tattoo, I remember from my childhood hearing Christians tell me, you know, there's a Bible verse that says that it's a sin to get a tattoo. Do not get a tattoo. So I looked that up. That's Leviticus 19.28. You're right. Leviticus 19.28 says, do not cut yourself for the dead. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Or get tattoo marks on your body. I am the Lord, it says, which is like really serious. It's like, I am Yahweh and I approve this message. It's intense. So I thought, okay, Leviticus 19.28 says not to get a tattoo. But then again, that's the law. And that's what Jesus frees us up from. There's my Bible verse. So yes, I got a tattoo. I got Leviticus 19.28 tattooed on my forearm uh, for the world to see. And it has been worth its weight in gold as far as starting great conversations. First people see it, they go, Leviticus something, what is that? Uh, And they get kind of shy about it. I think, you know, then they'll say, is that like, you know, God hates gay people? Or what does that verse say? They don't know what to attach Leviticus to. And I'll say, no, no, no. That's that one Bible verse that says, whatever you do, do not get a tattoo. And then their face lights up. And they're like, and some of them will say, hey, way to give God the finger. I'm an atheist too. And I'll say, no, actually, I love God and I'm drunk on Jesus and I'm even a pastor of a church. And then they're like, what? Um, but it it leads to a beautiful conversation to say, I'm not under the law. Um, I'm, I'm following the way of love and only Jesus rescues us not only from our own selfishness and teaches us other centeredness rather than self-centeredness, but he rescues us from the worst of our religious past. And, and that's, that's what I want to help people, both Christians and non-Christians discover. All right. Last question, Bruxy, where specifically, because again, this is your world, where specifically do you see hope for the church? Yeah, I think there's an opportunity that lies ahead for us to rebuild our lives and to rebuild the church. Again, using the word church, not to mean the the power-grabby institution and hierarchy, but the the community of people who are doing the Jesus thing together and learning together and amplifying the voice of the Spirit by coming together. Um, There's a chance for us to rebuild this. One of the things that identifies our church, the Meeting House, is that we're less of a large Sunday gathering and more of a community of house churches. We have over a hundred what we call home churches that are spread out over the region where where we are. So really we're a collection of small churches, a network of small churches. And we we find our identity there now online in many cases, but in a growing sense in person as we start to get back. And it's giving us a chance to just rebuild who we are 
in meaningful community. We've always said that real church happens when we turn the chairs to face one another. That's church. It's, it's okay if you all want to sit facing the same direction, listening to the paid professional holy man teach a message, but that's more like a dietary supplement. That's not the main meal. Um, if that's all you think of when you think of church, then it's more like a veal fattening pen than it is actually a place where sheep go in and go out and find pasture and, and get healthy. I think this is an opportunity for us in our church, but also other churches to rebuild from the smaller units upward some really healthy relationships. And I hope as as people do that, that they just keep Jesus at the center or else the church goes off the rails unless we keep Jesus at the center. And Jesus is just not one more Bible character. I heard a pastor once preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, and he'd be a well-known pastor. I heard him on the radio. People might know him if I said his name. And he he said, um, you know, Jesus obviously taught, for instance, we should love our enemies. We should be nonviolent. He's very clear about that. And I thought, oh, it's really bold of this pastor to preach nonviolence. And then he went on to say, yes, but, you know, we also know that Moses led Israel into, into war through Joshua. I supported Joshua. And then we know that King David led Israel to battle. So we have to balance it out. And I realized, wow, how, how dangerous is that when we have to balance Jesus out as though he's just one other Bible character rather than the center of our faith? So that's my hope is that as we rebuild the church now in 2021, we are relentless about keeping Jesus at the center, not just the Bible in general or God in general, but Jesus. I think that's the hope of the church. Special thanks to Bruxy Cavi for being on the show today. That was just an absolute sheer joy for me. You have no idea. To learn more about Bruxy, just go to Bruxy.com. When you have a name like Bruxy, you can have a URL like that. So go to Bruxy.com and keep track of what he's up to. If you want to know more or check out more about The Meeting House, make sure you go to TheMeetingHouse.com. Of course, if you want to support this podcast, do me a huge favor. Subscribe to the show. Give it a five-star rating and write a review. And until next time, keep walking.